the verse um, the Lord's given me to preach on this morning is Exodus chapter 22, verse 21 and 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So we all know part two of the Great Commandment, right? We get to hear it every Sunday in our liturgy. If you don't know the Great Commandment, um, you're really not paying attention on Sunday. Um, but it's worth perennially pausing to ask the question, um, what is love? Since I um, wrote this sermon a couple of days ago, I haven't been able to get that song out of my head from the 90s, What is Love? Um, but what we need to continually do is look to the scriptures to answer the question of how to obey this commandment. What is love? The scriptures give us a picture of love, specifically the Old Testament. One of the great uses of the Old Testament is that the moral law, you know, as um, traditional interpreters of scripture, Anglicans make a distinction between the ceremonial law, which is to do with the, cult, the ritual of the temple, which was fulfilled in Jesus, so that's replaced, and then, or I should say, uh, made better <laughs> through the new covenant. Um, there's some of the particular governances of the nation of Israel, the sort of civil law, and then there's the moral law in the Old Testament that really gives us this sort of nitty-gritty of what love looks like. So when we want to know what it means to love our neighbors, we, of course, intuitively already understand that love is a warm affection, a doing good towards, you know, kind of a vague sense. But the scripture gives us a clearer and a, a wider definition of, of love. I think Exodus 22 um, is perfectly paired with Matthew 22 and the wisdom of our lectionary this morning, um, showing us actually that lo the love that God expects us to have for our neighbor isn't just an interpersonal kind of affectionate love. It's also a practical and material way of demonstrating love in society, in the communities in which we're a part. So in 15th century BC, when God gave this law through Moses, um, one of the sort of societal facts at play was that foreigners were easy prey for oppression. They could be hired for work and then not paid, and they'd have no means of fighting that. Right? They wouldn't have a clan present with them to sort of, or, or money or social capital to try and um, attain justice for themselves. They would just be stuck. For the same reason, they were vulnerable to theft and assault. And if they tried to fight back, if they were injured or murdered, they'd have no one to defend them. They were outsiders socially. Ditto widows and orphans, which is why they so often appear together in the Old Testament, sojourners, widows, and orphans. Windows and orphans, by definition, would have no immediate family to come to their defense. Also easy targets for fraud, theft, and abuse. You could steal something from a widow, sell it for a profit, and there would be no person to sort of advocate for justice for that widow. That's the context into which this law is given. And um, one of the things I discovered in looking at this passage is that uh, God is always, of course, one step ahead of human craftiness and the way our wicked hearts try and kind of weasel around the law. Um, it's not hard to imagine uh, a householder, say, in the time of, of Moses, who might say to his farm manager, look, I just want such and such a return. I'm not going to ask questions, right? And then there could be sort of def um, defrauding a laborer of uh, his wages. There could be uh, theft 
of the vulnerable. And the, the householder could have the pretension, well, I didn't oppress a widow. I, I didn't hurt the sojourner. Right? <coughs> but one of the things that um, gives the lie to this um, pretense of obeying the law is that in Exodus 22, there's this back and forth between the plural and the singular. So stay with me on this. It actually would be beneficial to trans uh, for transparency to the Hebrew if our English Bibles utilize the great southern y'all. Um, actually, little known facts, did you know that the one of the um, translation advantages of the King James is that there actually was a distinction between singular and plural back then and in the King James. If you see thou, that's singular, and if you see ye, that's, that's plural. So if you have just a little fact there. But um, if you t pay attention to the singular and the plural, this passage actually reads, you shall not wrong a sojourner, y'all shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. That so often, mistreatment and oppression uh, is a collaborative, can be, could be a collaborative effort. One person benefiting from another person's wicked deed. It goes on, if you do mistreat them, I will kill y'all with the sword. It's a strong threat, right? I will kill y'all with the sword. If so, if there is a singular, singular act of this, the, the community will, like, benefits from the evil deed, the community will be punished according to the evil deed that happens in the midst. So what we learn from this passage from Exodus 22 is that God cares about justice, we already know that, but really practically about economic justice in a, at, a, at a group setting as a society. Y'all, it says, will be held accountable if y'all collude with or turn a blind eye to the oppression of the vulnerable in your midst. If an immigrant is getting underpaid or underprotected in the workplace, if a teenager is being exploited on the internet, if a field hand is being inadequately provided for, God cares about that. He doesn't just care about a forensic spiritual righteousness of our soul. That is necessarily connected to righteousness, justice in the society in which we participate. Not only does he care about it, Exodus says he's angry about it. It's something that I didn't have right theologically until like, like many years into being a Christian. I think I had grown up thinking that God has no anger anymore, which was a sort of misapplication of a, right, a truth about the atonement, that his anger is satisfied by Christ on the cross. On the cross. But he still is angry. And there's actually, I mean, Judgment Day, the, at the end of time, will be the, the meeting out of God's anger. That he still, and so there are things we can do that still make him angry. Now, his anger is, um, to speak in a human way, soothed, as it were. I mean, God isn't like, like a cranky guy, right? So the, 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 the metaphor here is limited, but it's soothed by the blood of Jesus, but he still experiences anger. And the Bible tells us that what? Um, the economic oppression of the vulnerable. To abide these things is really to fail, to abide, abide the uh, oppression of the vulnerable. It's just to fail to love your neighbor, right? The call to love your neighbor isn't just a, well, when you encounter your neighbor, well, then make sure you do something good. It's actually a sort of positive demand on our engagement with our neighbors, with our society. To fail to love your neighbor is to be on the wrong side of God. And did you catch that bit in Exodus about the cloak and about like giving a cloak and make sure you give it back? Um, I'll spare the details of like how that all played out in, first century, in 15th century BC um, exchanges. But if we telescope that into our own day, into our own city, 
Um, it's plain that if there's a system where someone has inherited a vulnerable position and that person is preyed on, like for instance, just to give one example, by a title pawn shop that is predatorily placed in a poor neighborhood and then charges 300% interest, 300% APR. And then you're locked in a cycle already in poverty of grinding poverty, of continual loan repayments. That's a system that God hates. That an aspect of something that God told us he hates in Exodus 22, let's just give one instance, I'll let you think of more. Um, but there are aspects of our day-to-day -day living today which make God angry. Because God hates, let me be really clear about this definition, he hates economic injustice that's the fruit of love's absence. Right? It's not just, I want to paint with a very clear brush here. Economic injustice is the fruit of love's absence, which might not be all economic disparity, but some, at least, right? And just to be clear, Exodus 22 isn't just some Old Testament rule. The Lord Jesus himself said that the law will not pass away, though heaven and earth should pass away. It's, as I said at the beginning, an explication of what God means when he says love. And, and if it wasn't for the forgiveness of Jesus, this is one of the laws that should we participate in its breaking, we would go to hell for. Right? This is among the things that God is offering us forgiveness for in Jesus Christ. The law continues, though, to be the standard by which Christian life is measured. We are not to oppress or defraud the vulnerable or benefit from their oppression or defrauding. Come, to come at this from the other angle, um, every negative law in the, Bible, in the Old Testament, and this is a, 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 way, a great way to try and get more out of reading the Old Testament, every negative don't do this, it's good to think, well, what's the positive do this that, that will reveal God's character, right? So Ten Commandments say don't commit adultery. Yeah, right. Be pure, because God is pure. Right? This is something the New Testament makes clear all the time. Don't just lie. Don't lie. Be truthful, right? To think of the opposite virtue. So, don't oppress the vulnerable or collude with their oppression. Defend the vulnerable and honor them with justice. Protect and support the defrauded. Cultivate, therefore, a neighbor love for, to, for all those to whom you're in any way economically connected. In the 15th century BC, that was a much simpler thing to get your head around, right? It was the 25 people that you interacted with on a regular basis. In our globalized age, where if you're like me, you have a tag on the back of your shirt that says, you know, made in India or something, we're already economically connected to a lot of people. We're to cultivate neighbor love for a lot of people, let alone all the people in this country to whom our fate is tied by virtue of being under the same governance. God says very clearly in the Great Commandment, if the tables are turned and you were them, how would you want them to treat you? So think of like whatever's the most sort of extreme case in that mind that, that, where this might apply, it still applies. Think, of, think for instance of um, the sort of hot topic question of, of illegal immigration. Christians can have opinions about what laws of a country best make sense for the country and and, and laws should be enforced. I mean, I, I'm not arguing for anything there. I'm just trying to say, if the tables were turned and you were them and they were you, how would you want to be treated? That's a Christian question to ask. And then do that thing. And obviously, some of these things you might not have uh, direct sway over. I don't, think, I don't think any of you are secretly members of ICE or something like that. 
But we live in a day-to-day -day world which is much more than just direct action. We're all talking about things, um, engaging for things, advocating for different things, in conversations with friends, in our online conversations, if you can call them that. <laughs> in a late capitalist information age, I really do believe that um, considering your vulnerable neighbor should affect your consumer spending, the things you advocate for, and especially how you vote. So do these things with your vulnerable neighbor in mind because you're called to have a neighbor love for them. Neighbor love means recognizing that in everyone that we are interconnected with, in relationship, economically, we are to treat them and consider them the way we would like to be treated. That there is no them, really, for a Christian. It's all us. It's all you. It's clear um, that when, I, when I'm saying that what I'm saying is that God cares about justice, socially, social justice, which I know is this sort of word that gets fought over. And to be clear, I know that there's a way in which the Christian gospel in sometimes gets replaced with this worldly version or vision of social justice. What I'm saying is not that. I'd really, uh, and if you don't believe me, take Exodus 22 and just read it over every day this week. And let me ask you next week, does God care about economic social justice? I really believe listening to Exodus 22, the answer is yes. To fail to care about the exploitation of the vulnerable is to invite the anger of God. So if even just for self-interest, because we don't want to experience the anger of God, that's the great promise of Christ, right? But if we willfully reject his commandments and, and persist in that rejection, we can expect to experience the anger of God. So even just self-interest should incline us to be attentive to the vulnerable. Just to close with the words of Exodus, the Lord says, and he, does, and he means this as a threat, if we don't hear their cry, he will. That's the sort of the, the connection in, in Exodus 22. If we don't hear their cry, he will. Amen.